Good morning to you all. Please take your seats. My name's Andy. I'm a pastor here at Walton Evangelical Church. It's good to welcome you all here this morning. We're continuing our series this morning, working through the book called Philippians. It's a letter written to a church in Philippi, and we have finally got to chapter two. It's taken us a number of weeks. We're going to pick up the pace, and we've got a wonderful passage to look at uh, this morning from that letter. So let's pray before we start. Father, as human beings, we can be hard-hearted and we can be stubborn a lot of the time. It is very hard for us to change our attitude towards things. And so we pray, Lord, this morning that by your living word, that by your powerful spirit, you will work in the hearts of your people, that we would become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us this morning in these things. Amen. Well, humility is the topic of what we're looking at this morning, and it's a wonderful passage, this. Humility is a strange thing. We all recognise humility as being an attractive quality, don't we? We, we recognise it as a virtue. Being humble is good, isn't it? And... and because of that, we dislike proud people. We don't like people who behave arrogantly. You know, we, we rightly pick people up, don't we? Don't, don't we? When, when they're being big-headed. You know, I'm surprised you can get through the door, mate, the he your head's so big. Or, or we chide them, saying things like, you know, pride goes before a fall, be careful. And to be honest, arrogant people are annoying, aren't they? They're hard to spend time with. And yet... In other contexts, we do seem to see pride as being a good thing. So we tell people to have pride in themselves. We tell our kids, you know, I'm proud of you. You've done well. You should be proud of yourself. You know, we say things like that, don't we? So I guess there's a, a kind of pride that, generally speaking, we think is, is okay. That's kind of all right, isn't it? Uh, and perhaps that's got to do with what it is that we are proud of, I wonder. If it's something that we all agree is okay or is good, then, then pride is okay, right? Now, this is something I, I didn't know. According to historian John Dixon, the culture that the Philippian, that this letter was originally written to, was, was the culture of the ancients. And he says this, Whereas the ancients draw a straight line between greatness and honour, the West, modern day, draws a line between greatness and humility. It is well known that humility was not a virtue in Greco-Roman ethics. In fact, the word meant something like crushed or debased. It was associated with failure and shame. In the 147 pithy maxims of the Delphic Canon, which we're sure we all know, from the 6th century BC, considered by ancient Greeks to be the sum and substance of the ethical life, there is no mention of the theme of, let alone the word of, humility. Whereas today it would be difficult to list 10 virtues without including 
humility. So this letter is written to a very different world, isn't it? He continues and says this, in its place, so in the place of the word humility, the word philotimia, the love of honour, was put. The logic was compelling. If one had achieved great things, it was only right and proper that full recognition be given. Achievement deserves public praise. Humility before the gods, of course, was appropriate, primarily because they could kill you. And humility was advisable before emperors for the same reason. But humility before an equal or a lesser was morally suspect. <laughs> it, up, it, it upset the assumed equation. Merit demanded honour, thus honour was proof of merit. Avoiding honour implied diminishment of merit. It was shameful. Now, interesting. That's, that's the culture this letter's written to. It's kind of hard to believe, isn't it? The ancient world really didn't consider humility to be a virtue. You know, if you legitimately, if you had a legitimate trumpet, yeah, you should, you'd be a fool not to blow that trumpet on every possible occasion. That's the world that, that, that we're talking about. Now, the Bible talks a lot about pride and, and even into that culture and before that culture and during that culture. And it's quite different what the word of God says. The Bible tells us that God op opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Very interesting. It's upside down, isn't it? And Paul himself says this in his letter to the Galatians, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world's been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul there clearly sees only one source of pride, doesn't he? There's just one source of pride for Paul. It's the cross of Christ. But can you see how statements like that would then clash with the world in which the Philippians lived that we're looking at? I, I still, I'm blown away. I, I find it fascinating to consider, and, and hit more than one historian I've, I've read this week has said the same thing, that the way that we view humility positively today is actually as a result of the spread of Christianity into the West. That's staggering. Dixon goes further. He says this, we can date this innovation in ethical reasoning precisely to the middle of the first century in a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians in the Roman colony of Philippi in northern Greece. This, we're looking today at the origin of humility as a virtue. Isn't that incredible? If it's true. <laughs> now, in our last sermon at the end of uh, chapter one, Paul talked about the highest calling of a Christian. You can look it up, it's in verse 27. The highest calling of a Christian is to live a life worthy of the gospel. And we try to look at a little bit of what that meant. To do this, says Paul, we must together as a church live by kingdom values. The world will always be in opposition to God's people. And in fact, God has granted us the honour of suffering for Christ. It's one of the kingdom values. Now, to be clear, we saw that that doesn't mean the common sufferings that result from living in a broken world. It means to suffer for defending and proclaiming the gospel. To suffer directly because 
we are following and obeying Jesus Christ. That is a suffering granted to us as his people. And the first thing we started to see is that if we are, as a church, to stand up against that kind of opposition and persecution, we need to be united. Absolutely crucial. As a church, we need to be united. And so you remember the picture of the battlefield. Keep that one in the back of your, of your, of your minds. Battlefield, Roman soldiers with their shields. We're to stand together, firm-footed, as the enemy approaches. Shields need to be interlocked. There's no place for someone who's not, who's not doing their part. Lock your shield in. Because we have to act with one mind, says Paul, and one spirit as we defend the gospel. And that is crucial. Unity is crucial in the church. Gospel work is not the work of individuals, ultimately. Especially when the world stands in opposition to us and our message. It's the work of the church. But humility... So that's unity, but humility has been rightly called the central tenet of the Christian faith. Steve Lawson writes this, he says, the word for humility was coined when the church was birthed. Some speculate that the word was even invented by Paul himself in writing these verses. And so in these verses, Paul invites God's people to do some serious thinking on these topics of unity and humility. And first of all, we're to do that by taking a look in the mirror, then by taking a look at each other, and then finally, most importantly, looking at Jesus Christ himself. So that's the structure of where we're going this morning. So the first of those then, to look in the mirror. Have a look with me at verse one. Paul writes, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Now, a mirror is a really important piece of equipment, isn't it? Yeah? It shows us what we look like. I mean, think, think about it. Before you look in a mirror, all you have to go on about yourself is secondhand information, isn't it? It's just what others tell you about yourself. Or, or it could be subjective feelings about yourself, how you're, how you're feeling today. That's all you've got to go on. But once you stand in front of the mirror and you see your reflection, you can act and you can add legitimacy, actually. Gen it's, your feelings can be genuine and legitimate once you've looked at and you can rightly feel reassured once you've had a good look at the mirror or, or otherwise. You know, uh, you get up in the morning, I, I, I thought I was looking good today, I thought so, and I'd stand in front of the mirror, yes I am, yes I am. Or you know, all through breakfast I was worried about my hair, and I stand in front of the mirror, I was right, I was right to be worried about my hair. Yeah, it shows us the truth. Now, Paul wants us to take a really good look at ourselves in the light of the gospel. Okay, in the light of the gospel. To take a look at our reflection, if you like, in the gospel mirror as God's people. Because it's there that you're going to see the truth. A real, clear reflection of who you are. 
And by the way, as we look at these verses, at verse 1, okay, with every clause here in this verse, he expects us to answer back, yes, I do. Okay? So as we read through it, you're supposed to say, yes, I do. So he says, verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, yes, I do. If any comfort from his love, well, yes, I do. If any fellowship with the Spirit, yes. If any tenderness and compassion, amen to that. That's how you're to read that verse, isn't it? If you're one of God's people. So take a closer look at those different things there. Do you find the fact that you are united to Christ encouraging? Do you find that encouraging? You're united to Christ. This union, I think it's always supposed to bring, in my mind, it always brings this picture of marriage where two become one. Are you encouraged that in the gospel, Jesus Christ has declared, all that I am, I give to you, and all that I have, I share with you, and that by faith you have replied, all that I am, I give to you, and all that I have, I share with you. Does that encourage you? That means his righteousness is ours. That he has taken on himself our sin and our shame. Union with Christ. That when opposition, think about this, in the context of the Philippians, when opposition comes at you, it never really just comes at you. It certainly doesn't come at you alone. It comes first of all at him. It's evidence you're united with him, be encouraged. It wouldn't be coming at you if you weren't united to him. He's drawing the fire. So are you encouraged by that? Yes, I am. Of course I am. Are you comforted by his love? Love that chose you, saved you. Love that abides on you ever, every day and, and doesn't leave. Love that never fails. God's covenant, faithful love, as unchanging as he is. Are you comforted by that? Are you experiencing fellowship with the Spirit? Walking each day in step with him. Battling sin in his strength. Seeing the beginnings of, of fruit, his fruit being worked out in your life. Are you experiencing that fellowship? Oh, yes. And have you felt his tenderness and compassion? It's a wonderful thought, that, isn't it? He treats you with gentleness. God intimately understands how you're made. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your struggles. He's not expecting of you something impossible because he knows you. He is tender and compassionate. And so the question that we are to ask as we stand in front of the mirror of the gospel is what difference actually is the gospel making in my life, in my thinking? And the things I do, the way I live, the way I act towards others. The problem is that all of us are susceptible to following our feelings and our emotions. Because we're made with them and they mess with us, don't they? But despite what the world might say, those are a terrible guide, actually, to reality. Especially for a Christian. Terrible guide. The mirror of feelings, it's like going into one of those fairground house of mirrors, isn't it? 
exaggerating some traits. It's what we do in our minds, isn't it, about ourselves. We think about ourselves. We exaggerate things, usually bad things. Diminishing other things, usually the good things. Giving a really warped picture of reality. And by warped, I mean untrue. I mean a lie, actually. As Christians, the objective truth about us is seen with clarity actually only in the gospel mirror. You could do worse than just reading that verse. We looked at verse one every morning, couldn't you? It's where you see the truth. Probably do you more good than standing in front of an actual mirror, wouldn't it? And the thing is, is this, is the longer that we stand and stare at that mirror, the more likely it is that our feelings, our thinking about ourselves, will actually start to line up with the truth because we're staring at it and it's in our face. I guess we all get out of bed some mornings and we feel tired and we feel a bit despondent, don't we? We're up and down because that's, that's what we're like, disappointed in ourselves. We focus on our, our failures and our shortcomings, don't we? We all have dark periods like that. Well, we do that, I think. But in the gospel, we are reminded you're one with Christ. You're chosen and loved. You're forgiven. You're never alone. You're helped in all of life's struggles. Helped by the greatest power in the universe and, and understood intimately by the one who made you. If only we felt like that every day. I'd encourage you, look in the mirror, look in the mirror of the gospel. It would certainly help us to see ourselves the right way, wouldn't it? But actually, what Paul is getting at here is that these things ought to help us also in the way that we see each other. Have a look at how he carries on. I'll start again at verse 1. Just look down at your Bibles. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Here's the point. Listen to this, okay? What is true of you, as you look in the gospel mirror, is true of each one of your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's the same to them. It's true of them too. Think about that for a moment. Because it's together that we make the bride of Christ his, his loved one. Now, if anything threatened the church in Philippi, who are, a, by all intents and purposes, they're a brilliant church, aren't they, that, 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 that Paul is so excited about. They're his dear friends. But if anything threatened them, it was, apparently, it was disunity. I mean, that's clear from the way that Paul keeps on banging this drum, doesn't he? He keeps talking about being united, being of one mind. In fact, he actually makes an appeal to two of the members of this church at the beginning of chapter 4. Maybe you know that. He pleads with them to agree with each other. He asks the church members, get around these people and, and help them to sort it out because disunity is such a threat. We should take heed of that, shouldn't we? And no doubt we will say more about that crucial importance of unity in the local church in later weeks. I don't want to dwell there this morning. 
Because here Paul is talking about how we maintain and encourage and fuel our unity together in the church. And the interesting thing is it has everything to do with humility. And the key is in verses 3 to 4. So let's just take a look at those. First of all, verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. This is actually clearly a dig at those who are making trouble for Paul. He talks about in chapter 1, verse 17. He uses the same words. That's why it's a dig at them. He talks about people who preach Christ, actually do gospel ministry out of selfish ambition. Paul says don't do anything from that motive. The Christians in Philippi are to run a mile from that kind of attitude. Ambition, you see, like boasting, can be a good thing as long as the object of that ambition is actually worth being ambitious about. But Paul is clearly writing to a culture and an age where self-promotion was seen as the virtue here. Self-promotion. Now, popular culture today seems to be returning to this, doesn't it? Self-promotion. Whole industries exist to enable self-promotion. There's large numbers of people, actually, when you, you know, when, when you look at what's going on in the media, who are famous, really, for no other reason than that they are actually famous. It's very strange. You sort of, you, you hear a name and you think, well, who on earth is that person? <laughs> and you read it up and actually they're, they're not really anything other than famous. I don't understand it. We live in the age of the talent show, don't we, and the YouTuber. Bizarre. People become famous for playing video games. That still shocks me. But my, my boys grew up absolutely hooked on watching hours of footage of someone playing a computer game. And they're famous. It concerns me that some young people actually tell you that their plan in life, what you're going to do with your life, I'm going to be famous. That's the basket they're putting all their eggs in. I know we, we, we perhaps smile at that, but actually it's sad, isn't it? And I don't want to be unnecessarily discouraging, but realistically, only a small minority of people can actually be celebrities. It's their small number that makes them celebrities, isn't it? The logic of our world is all muddled up because of this whole thing of self-promotion. You know, a few years, maybe you remember, this is a classic example, a few years ago in 2016, it shows you the way that we think, we've started to think. The government, Mr. Gove, actually stated that his goal was, with a straight face he said this, that all schools should be rated good, meaning above the national average. Now, (laughs) okay, you, you get the point. All schools above average. But that's the world we're living in. You, you, can't, you can't be average anymore in this world. There's nothing wrong with being average. Average is pretty good, really, isn't it? I'd settle for average. This world scampers after it, doesn't it? And we're to be very different, especially within the church itself. We are to consider others better than yourself. Now, to clarify, that doesn't actually mean better in terms of more valuable or more able or more gifted. We're not just sort of persuade ourselves to believe a lie. 
The word means something more like, actually, more important. In fact, the ESV version of the Bible translates it as more significant. That's probably quite a good way of translating it. Consider others more important, more significant than yourself. And he clarifies what that means a little bit more in verse 4, look. Saying, each of you should look not only to your own interests. I mean, do look to your interests, you know, don't let yourself go. But don't look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. They ought to be on your radar. And it's actually some, this is some big stuff here, actually, isn't it? It's really important for the church to get this. Because I think what Paul is getting at here is to say that the key to unity and love in the church, unity and love that will bond us together in one mind and one spirit, is to put the interests, the needs, the preferences of others before your own. True humility, you see, Christ-like humility, is seen in laying down your rights because you can. Not because you must, but because you can. To lay down those things that you are actually entitled to in the loving service of others. And that's played out in so many areas of life where that's necessary, isn't it? The choices we make. The ways we do things in church. See, now, we're not talking about the non-negotiables here, you know, issues that are foundational to Christian belief. We're not, you know, you have one gospel, I have another one, and we'll just... That, we're not talking about that. Rather, we're talking about those things that are actually a matter of, of taste and personal opinion. What style of songs do we sing in our services? What instruments do we use or not use? How do we serve the Lord's Supper? What do, we, what do we actually put in the cups? Should the bread come from one loaf or, or is ready sliced? Okay. What kind of seats do we have in church? I mean, these are all issues that churches have serious issues over. What causes do we give our money to? Please, let us never fall out over things like that. That's, those are the areas we've got to take this attitude, aren't they? I'm just going to consider others more important than me. I'm going I'm to not just look to what I think. I'm going to really look at what they think. I'm going to prefer them over myself. Uh, and there are hundreds of these issues in church, aren't there? Where there's no, no, fundamentally no right or wrong answer. And so in all those matters, we all of us, and that's key, isn't it? We all of us as a church need to look to the interests of others, not merely our own. I love the way Paul puts this in Romans 12. He has this wonderful little expression in verse 10 of Romans 12 where he says, outdo one another in showing love and showing honour. You can imagine trying to get through a door where that's happening, can't you? <laughs> You'd never get through, would you? This is one of those things, you see, that only really works when all of us do it. It only really works when all of us are doing it. If some people re refuse to consider or to prefer the interests of others to, to, to their own, they're going to end up holding the church to ransom. It all gets messy. It all gets nasty, really, doesn't it? But that is not the way that Christ has shown us. Each one of us is to prefer the interests of others.
above their own. That's the way that Christ has shown us. And it's to him now that we've got to turn our gaze. We want to give some time to this last section. As we, we've looked in the mirror, we've looked at each other, and now finally, and most importantly, we need to look to Christ. It was this example, the example of Christ and what he did, that turned the world upside down. The humility of Christ here in these verses is simply breathtaking. And as we consider it, Paul tells us, get it in verse 5, you've got to line your attitude up with this. This is it. This is where your attitude needs to be, says Paul. Christ Jesus, verse 6, have a look. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's thought to have been a a very ancient uh, hymn, a hymn of the early church, written then, I suppose, in the generation after Jesus lived. This tells you what what his followers thought of him immediately after he'd returned to heaven. Immediately, within the lifetimes of, of those that lived with Jesus, this is how they understood him. Jesus was in very nature God, From eternity past, from before creation, Jesus was fully divine, God of God. He holds and he always has held the highest position in authority over the cosmos. That's what the introduction is telling us, isn't it? But, here it is, he did not cling to the rights and the privileges of that position. They didn't need to be prized from his hands. Instead, verse 7 tells us, in a way that baffles the mind, he made himself nothing. The idea here is that he laid aside those rights of deity in order to take on himself the limitations of humanity. That's what Jesus did. This is the Christmas story, isn't it? God becomes flesh and dwells amongst us. And there is no greater possible example of what it looks like to humble yourself and to lay down your rights than that, is there? But Jesus actually goes further. Verse 8 tells us that even in the humbled state of manhood, he humbled himself further serving those he created, being obedient even to the point of death, death by crucifixion. And that is a point being made there, isn't it? Crucifixion was a method of execution designed with humiliation in mind. Beaten, stripped naked, raised up as a spectacle for people to mock. And that is what it took to save sinners. If there had been another way, another way for God to punish sin, 
whilst at the same time pardoning sinners, then he would surely have taken it. But this was the only way. And all of this, our Saviour did willingly. The first half of that hymn is all about, all about what Jesus did of his own volition. Just read it through. He did it, he did it, he did it. As he humbled himself. But the second half, just briefly, tells us what his father did in response. Note verse 9 starts with, therefore. It is because of this act of humility, this self-giving act whereby God has redeemed people, where he's going to free the whole of creation. It's because of this that Jesus has been exalted to the highest place. Jesus is not just creator and ruler of the cosmos. He is now also its redeemer. And as such, his name will command the submission and the humble confession of every tongue in the whole of creation. His people are those who have bowed the knee to him in this life. I hope that is you. But ultimately, no knee will remain unbowed before him when he returns to judge the earth. So this was a hymn that inspired the first century church to give themselves in humble service to one another, to champion humility as the highest of all virtues, humility. And the logic is simple. If Christ was willing to humble himself in this way, we should too, for we're his followers. His condescension was infinitely greater than anything that we might undertake in humbling ourselves. His humiliation, his humility, was far more costly than it could ever be for us. Jesus doesn't ask us, in following him, to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself and to set the example. And it's important to see that in this hymn, we are not pointed to Jesus so as to be crushed by our failures and our shortcomings. This hymn's not just a guilt trip for you. Instead, we're to be challenged here to do better, to be inspired, to aspire by God's grace to walk in the footsteps of our Saviour. Will you do that? To put the needs of others before your own. It's the essence of what he did on the cross, isn't it? To find true greatness in humble service and to boast only in the cross of Christ. Now, as we close now, we're going to be eating the Lord's Supper together. Uh, if you haven't picked that up on, on your way in and you're planning to join us, then please do find that just on the table by the door. As we eat the Lord's Supper, we're doing precisely this passage tells us to do, isn't it? Paul tells us that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man or a woman ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognising the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is a very serious thing that we do together. But as a church, we welcome to join us in this supper those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation and who come as sinners, yet repenting of their sin and desiring to live in obedience to Christ. Those who have openly confessed their faith and been baptised according to their understanding of the scriptures and who are in fellowship with the local church and living in harmony with God's people. If that's you, then welcome. If not, then please do just let it pass you by. That's fine. Spend this time thinking about what you've heard this morning. We eat this bread in remembrance of Christ's body. That's what the bread there is a picture of for us. He who humbled himself and was obedient even to death on the cross. He did that on our behalf. And as we eat the bread, we remember that. This was on my behalf. He was the sacrifice for our sins. And we preach that gospel of truth to ourselves. We look in the mirror of the gospel as we feed on him. So let's pray before we do that.